Uh, well, it is lovely to be with you again. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've been here. I think actually the last time uh, I was here was when my wife and I were here running a marriage enrichment weekend. And uh, can I just say how wonderful it is to see that um, there's another marriage enrichment course coming up. Uh, my wife and I have done the exact course that Graham and Michelle are hosting. Uh, can I highly commend it? It's a terrific course and a great opportunity. I realise it comes at a cost to make such things um, available, but do make the most of that. Um, can I ask you please to have uh, this insert that you should have gotten in the handout in front of you. It's not a very complicated insert today or an outline. It's just the passage that was read, but I've laid it out in a particular way that will help you to follow along um, as we look at Hebrews chapter 10 in particular. Uh, I recognise it's a great privilege that I'm here, for me, to be here at the end of a series as you've been making your way through this wonderful topic of church, uh, what church is, what it's for, uh, why, despite its complications at times, it is still the greatest thing that God is doing on earth. And uh, when Graham said, would you preach today, um, on the, uh, for, to conclude the series, uh, we thought actually that Hebrews 10 was a good passage for us to finish on. So I'm just going to say a few things about the passage, and then um, in, the, in the nature of the passage, exhort you in the way in which the writer does for us. Um, before we do that, let me pray as we spend this time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We pray this morning, um, as we reflect on it, please speak to us by your spirit. Point us towards your son, who is the head of the church. Uh, we pray that because of him in whom we have life, uh, you might encourage us to stand firm for him in this week ahead. Amen. I thought I'd start by asking you who you are most afraid to approach. Who are you most afraid to approach. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe if you're a school child, it's the headmaster or the deputy headmaster who's responsible for discipline. Maybe it's the coach of the sporting team that you're on and you want more game time or a different position, but you're not really quite courageous enough to go before him or her. Maybe it's a friend who you've let down. Maybe a parent. Maybe a child. My experience is that if you let someone down, oftentimes you really don't want to see them again. How much more so then do you think coming into God's presence? And yet verse 22 in Hebrews chapter 10, right in the middle of that passage, urges us to draw near to God. To draw near to God. And this is the big idea in this passage, in fact, in this whole chapter. In this passage, there are two reasons why that he gives in verses 19 through 21, and then two reasons why that he gives after in verse 22. Let's have a look at the passage. Verses 19 through 21 to start with. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, well, let's look at this opening passage. And notice how it begins there with a therefore, uh, therefore brothers and sisters, as you well know, whenever you see the therefore, you ask the question, why is the therefore, therefore, and what's in particular come before that? Um, if we'd read our way through chapters 1 through 10, we would have heard over and over and over again that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything else this world has to offer. Jesus is better than the angels. 
Jesus is better than all the prophets who've come before. Jesus is better than Moses, than Aaron, than the Levitical sacrifices. Jesus is better than everything. And so here in chapter 10, in verses 19 through 21, the writer is going to give us two reasons why we ought have confidence to approach God. Both are to do with Jesus. You see that there with the senses in verses 19 and uh, 21. Since uh, we have confidence in the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Why is it that the writer says we can draw near to God? Well, it's because of the blood of Jesus and because Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. A couple of comments about each of those things. Uh, If the blood of Jesus makes it possible for us to come before God, it's a reminder that our sin is real. Our sin is real. There are consequences to our failings. Blood actually needs to be shed, which would be a terrifying thought, apart from the fact that, according to Hebrews 10, Jesus' blood was shed so that ours need not be. And there's one reason why we draw near to God. But the other is that Jesus is a great priest over the house of God. And of course, the language of priest doesn't mean a lot to us today because we're not steeped in that kind of tradition. Perhaps you might think of a priest as being someone who is a representative, an advocate, a spokesperson, an intermediary, your public defender. Because Jesus is all of these things, you and I can have confidence to enter into God's presence. So there's two reasons why the writer gives that we ought to have confidence to come before God in verses 19 through 21. There's two more reasons in the second half of verse 22. So pick it up in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. Uh, Here's the two reasons. They're having, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, why ought you feel confident to come before God? Well, because of the two reasons given here, our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Again, just a couple of comments about those images that are being used there. Uh, The image, uh, the first one, hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, that's a description of an inner kind of cleansing, that is of a purifying of what's within. Uh, Whereas bodies being washed with the pure water, well, uh, that's a picture, I think, of outer acceptability, of being made clean on the outside. Inner and outer cleansing is what Jesus provides. Now, Uh, What does that mean for you? Well, it'll mean different things for all of us as you reflect on what it means to be dirty and what it means to be made clean. Uh, Here's one way in which it it resonates for me, at least, uh, and let me acknowledge, this is possibly at the risk of oversharing with you today. Uh, A number of years ago, I started reading my Bible in the bath. Um, uh, Yes, oversharing, uh, I understand. Um, I started when our kids were much younger and I discovered that the only place in the whole house where they would leave me alone was when I was in the bathtub. So every morning for me, Bible reading is in the bath. And I just love it, partly because I like warm water too, but, you know, there's something that's quiet, they stay away, 
and for a few minutes each day, I had a chance to do my devotions. Um, I did, and this really is going to fail, I did contemplate reading the Bible on the toilet, but I thought that just somehow feels dirty, it's like I shouldn't do that, so bathtub it was. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, bathing, bathing, although very French, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't clean your outside particularly well, but it certainly doesn't clean you within. How wonderful for us to be told that because of what Jesus has done, both outer and inner can be made clean. And I think the more we reflect on that, the more we realise just what a blessing and privilege it is to be clean, to be able to come before the presence of our holy and righteous God. Well, look at verse 23. Because uh, in verse 23, having urged us to draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings, a slightly similar idea, but, but different, comes up in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, having said what the writer's just said, you might be wondering, why is verse 23 here? Like, what does this add given what we have just seen in the preceding verses. One of the things that it does is that it reminds us that the reason we can hold on to our hope, the reason we can hold on to our hope, is not because any one of us is particularly resilient or particularly self-assured, confident in our own abilities. The reason we hold on to our hope is because he who promised us is faithful. And I think that's a lovely thing for us to be reminded of. See, it means that when you are tempted to give up hope, please don't. Please don't. Uh, Not because of our own efforts, not because of our own ingenuity, or not because we are confident that our circumstances will change or turn soon enough. The reason we're not to give up hope is because he who promised us is faithful. The character of our God is the reason why we do not give up as believers. Why we continue to draw near to him in full assurance of faith. It's worth noting that at, at some level, what the writer is describing is what it means to live by faith and not by sight to have hope for things unseen, not yet realised. And of course, at one level, I think for some of us at least, we, we feel a little bit ripped off. I mean, wouldn't it be better to live by sight and not by faith? To not have to trust, but to see with your own eyes. At some point, I suspect all of us have thought, wouldn't it have been great to have been one of the Old Testament believers before whom God actually appeared? Then you would know that he was for real. Maybe one of the first disciples who met Jesus I mean, surely then you would never doubt that Jesus was a real person if you'd have been around. That would be living by sight. And I think for at least some of us, we feel that that would overcome some of our doubt. Yet the writer is saying to us, you and I today, we are so much more blessed than any believer who, have, who came before us. Because... By the Holy Spirit, 
you and I can draw near to God whenever and whenever we want. By the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Christ, we can draw near to God whenever and wherever we want. We actually have something even greater than those who came before us could only dream of. Well, let me come to the very last couple of verses in the passage and then I'll draw a couple of reflections for us. Verses 24 and 25. Here's the final exhortation from the reader, from the writer. Verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, verse 24. Let us spur one another on toward love and and good deeds. Uh, somewhat unusually, the writer here is encouraging competition in the Christian community, I think. A competition in the Christian community. Spur one another, one another along toward love and good deeds. Romans 12 will talk about outdoing one another in love, being competitive about love. I'll come back to that in a moment, but of course, one of the questions is what are those love and good deeds? that the writer is referring to. Now, there's, there's different ways of answering that question. In fact, if you were just to turn over your Bibles to chapter 13, you'd see a whole list of things, and, and we won't get there today. But verse 25 gives the first explanation or application of love. Verse 25, do not give up meeting together. Do not give up meeting together. I don't know what your experience of COVID has been like here over the last year or so. I understand that you were online for a short period of church. Um, we were for about three months. Um, I suspect that like most Christians, we had that tension of, with Zoom church, um, both a deep thankfulness that there was something and a deep resentment that that's what we had. Because quite frankly, it sucked, didn't it? Like, what is this thing where you look at a screen and you know that that's not meeting together, even though we did our best to persuade ourselves that it was in the circumstances. The writer is saying that just the process of gathering together is encouraging. This came home to me a number of years ago. Um, for a number of years, I pastored the evening congregation at our church, which is mostly university students and young workers. It's quite a large congregation. There's about 200 there on any given Sunday. And uh, like um, you know, most Anglican churches, we'd celebrate communion uh, once a month. And I remember after one Sunday, I was talking to one of the senior members of our church afterwards, and as ministers are wont to do, I was having a bit of a complaint about how long it took to distribute communion to people. Because, you know, always watching the clock, you don't want the service to go too long, which apparently ministers worry about more than others at times, I think. And I was just saying, oh, you know, it took so long to get through. How can we do it faster next time? Um, and very graciously and gently, this senior saint chided me and said to me how encouraging it was to see so many young people come forward for communion on that night. It was a reminder that, you know, numbers aren't everything, but they are something. Because gathering together in and of itself, the first description of love in action, it is a great encouragement. 
Well, given that, given how good it is, how good you know it to be, and I'm preaching to the converted, of course, you're here today, why would anyone give up meeting together? Well, I'm sure we could all chronicle the reasons. Sometimes we feel like we are just too busy. Sometimes it is hard, painful even, if perhaps there is unrepentant or unforgiven sin. Sometimes, to be fair, when we gather together, it's not very inspiring or boring. If that's the case, talk to Graham. (laughs) Sometimes I think the reason we give up meeting together is because, and this is being honest here, because we think we won't be noticed. One of the interesting things is that as churches grow, generally regularity of attendance drops. As churches grow, regularity of attendance drops. A church that I currently attend, it's quite a large church, as I've mentioned, there's about a thousand people in our church. On any given Sunday, two in three will be there. Uh, what that means is, and um, you know, this is a little bit of an experiment, two in three, that means that if you're sitting in church today, you look to the person on your left and you look to the person on your right and one of you won't be there next week. People notice, eventually, and people miss you. I think of family gatherings, actually, biological family gatherings. They're the best example of that. You know, when you gather together for a special occasion, for someone's birthday, for an anniversary, the whole family gathers together, what's the first thing that people say when they walk in the door? The first thing they say is, who's not here? Uh, This actually happened for us last week. As I said, we came across to Sydney for the first time in a couple of years. Um, I have a sister, she has kids. Uh, We'd arranged a family dinner on both Monday night and Thursday night, but on Monday night my sister had to go to work. And there was a sense in which actually something wasn't quite right. So on Thursday, thankfully, we were all able to be together. If you think you won't be noticed, you will be if the family, anyone in the family is not there. Well, verses 24 and 25 talk about habits. Habits of meeting together, I think. Clearly, at some point in the past, they'd got it right. He says, do not give up meeting together, which means that I think at some point they had actually started meeting together. So one of the questions that I often ask people is, how do you form a habit? How do you start a good habit? How do you stop a bad habit? And my answer, it is devastatingly unprofound. How do you form a good habit? Well... You just have to do it twice. There's a habit, isn't it? Start it today, repeat tomorrow, and keep going. And the more you do so, actually, the more it becomes self-reinforcing. Now, of course, it means, therefore, that you can change a habit. Look at that as an opportunity. Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, let me wrap up then with just um, three quick observations, three conclusions. To return to where I began this talk, and in a sense as you close this series, Hebrews chapter 10 is saying, you are nearest to God 
when you are nearest to his people. You are nearest to God when you are nearest to his people. Because when we gather with his people, we see love in action. We see love in action. I wanted to ask you this morning to look around. Go on, look around. Take a moment. Look around. Do a 360, a full 360. Look around. I want to ask you, what do you see as you look around? Well, I know there's all sorts of amusing answers you could give at that point. But because of Hebrews 10, here's what I want to say. Here's what you see when you look around. You see opportunities to love people. Opportunities to love people. Because there are people here who need to be loved. Notice I didn't say that there are people here who are, well, let's put it this way, necessarily innately lovable. There are people here who need to be loved. Loved in the way in which Christ first loved us. Second observation, what makes this important? What makes this urgent? What is the reason why the writer keeps urging us to do these things is because of verse 25 in those last few words in the passage, because the day is approaching. Why is it important to meet together? It's because the day is approaching. Now, what is the day? It's capitalised there. It's most likely, I think, referring to the return of Jesus, what we've just sung about, what Hebrews chapter 9 talks about, Humankind being destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ being sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The day we look forward to is the day when our Lord and Saviour finally returns and appears. It strikes me that it will be very strange... It would be very strange if you were waiting for Jesus on your own. If you were waiting for Jesus on your own whilst everybody else was standing together. That, I think, would be very strange. It would be like if you've gone to the airport, you know, when travel eventually resumes, and particularly international travel, and someone who's been away for a while has finally flown back in, and you know what it's like. You stand outside at the international terminal and you're waiting for the corridor that they'll walk down. It'd be really strange if you were there on your own and every other person in their life was standing in a big group down the, down the hall. The day is near. And the gift, one of the gifts that God gives us is of the company of brothers and sisters as we wait for the firstborn son, the Lord Jesus, to return. So here's my third and final comment then. I'm not sure how you feel at the end of a talk like this. Some of you will be sitting there feeling perhaps a little judged. If that's the case, can I remind you that in Hebrews 10... Consistently, it is an appeal, not a command. Did you notice that? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Let us consider how we spur one another along. It's an appeal, not a command. 
And so where I'd like to finish is by saying that for me, who is a visitor to your spiritual family today, I can't wait to rejoin my family next Sunday. And my prayer is that you will join everyone else here next Sunday and, if necessary, in the next six days, scoop up all the absentees from this week and invite them to join you as your family meets to praise the name of our Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy you are calling not just individuals but a people to yourself. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the elder sibling, firstborn over all creation, the one whose blood was shed that we might draw near to you. I thank you for these brothers and sisters of mine here at Robertson Anglican. I pray that in this next week you might grant them opportunities to continue to meet with one another, to spur each other on to love and good deeds, but in particular for this week ahead for next Sunday. May they meet as your people, as a witness to the world around us of this hope that we have for Jesus' sake. Amen.